we ask you, our Father, for your special blessing this morning. We're just so thankful that you are gathered, you, that wherever we are gathered together, you are present with us when we worship together in your name. We exalt your name. We give you praise for all that you have done, for all that you are, for the fact that on this your day, we specifically focus our thoughts on the Word of God in, in, a, in a fellowship setting. We trust, Lord, that we truly will be a fellowship around the Word of God. Speak to us today, we ask, through your Word. Uh, strengthen us. Help us, Lord, to apply the truths that we learn to our daily walk. Forgive us, Lord, where we fail. Forgive us where we do not have the faith we ought to have. And I pray that as we look at Abraham and Sarah and other great men and women of Scripture, that uh, our faith will be made strong. We thank you for your presence in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn to Genesis chapter 21, Genesis chapter 21, I'd like to begin with the first seven verses. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son was, Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God had first indicated that a child would be born to Abraham and Sarah approximately 25 years before this event. He was a long-awaited son. God waited purposefully to the point where it would be physically impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child before he brought this child into the world. He wanted it to be known beyond a shadow of a doubt that this child was a miracle child, that this child came because God willed it, and it wasn't, it wasn't explainable in human terms. Now, we know from the passages we've been discussing that Abraham and Sarah were sorely tested along the way. You know, when you think about it, 25 years is a long time to wait for something that has been promised for which you have such deep desire. It's hard for us to really understand, even though hopefully in the passages we've read uh, in, in previous Sundays, we get the sense of how deeply they desired this son. And how important it was in that culture, in that day, to have a child, particularly to have a son, to carry on the family name and, and the, uh, you know, maintain the family. God heard their prayers and, of course, rewarded their faith. As we have looked, though, I, from our perspective, I'm sure we would have said, but their faith looked pretty shaky at times. But in God's eyes... Their faith was sufficient. We're all, I think, very familiar with the Hebrews 11 passage on faith. Let me just remind us of a couple of verses there that 
relate to this. In Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, we read, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead, and that as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. I'm not sure Abraham would like to have been categorized as as good as dead when he had another 75 years yet to live. But uh, the point being made about it all was that they were past childbearing in the physical realm. The normal processes were no longer functioning in them, and it took God's miracle for this to happen. And what's interesting about Hebrews is it says that Sarah had faith. And, of course, we think, yeah, but when she heard about it, she laughed, you know. And, and they went ahead and, and they tried to do it for God. And, and as a result, Ishmael was born. And we think, if that's faith, I, I, I guess I don't really understand faith. But the point is that there, Scripture teaches that if we have faith even as a grain of what? Mustard seed. God will hear and will answer our prayer. We have a tendency today, because of certain churches, I guess we could say, that teach us that when we don't immediately get the answer to our prayer, it's because we don't have faith. We, we have this sense that uh, faith comes in, you know, by the buckets, and that if we don't have buckets full of faith, that God's purposes can't be fulfilled. But Christ made it clear that even the smallest grain of faith is honored by God. And certainly that's about all Sarah and Abraham had at times. Because when you look at their lives and the things that we've uh, studied so far, it sure looked pretty shaky at times. And yet the scripture credits Sarah with faith and Abraham with faith. We look on the outward appearance, don't we? That's about all we can look at often, but God looks on the heart. And he knew that in spite of the failures that came into their lives, the failure that involved Ishmael, the, the two failures, the one in Egypt and the one in Philistia, and other failures that came along the way, God knew that that did not represent the basic faith of their hearts. Over and over again, the scripture keeps teaching us that we are but dust, our feet are clay, which is not to be used as an excuse to live in an ungodly way, but it helps us to recognize that God knows us, and God knows that we fail, and God knows that sometimes we fail monumentally, but in our hearts, deep down inside, he sees that mustard seed of faith, and he acts in accordance with that. So there was a basic faith in Abraham and Sarah. Even when she laughed, there was a seed of faith, and God honored that basic faith faith. Now Paul gives us a little insight into this that we don't get from just reading Genesis. If you will, turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, 
in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, notice that, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised he was able to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Again, as in the case of Noah, it was his faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness. God imputed righteousness to his account because of the faith that that man had, in this case, Abraham. And you'll notice it says, that Paul says here, his faith was unwavering. And we look at the passages of Genesis and, and we see him telling a lie to Pharaoh and telling a lie to Abimelech. And, and we see him going into uh, Hagar and uh, having a child by her. And we say, whoa, is that unwavering faith? Well, in God's eyes, the faith was there that, that God honored. And I think as a result, we need to constantly re remind ourselves that even though sometimes we know we act in opposition to the, to the will of God, if we're honest with ourselves and we admit that we sin, but at the same time we can't drive ourselves down into the slough of despond by saying you, you, you know, that we are men and women of no faith, because there is that faith. That's why we're here even today, because we have a basic faith in God. We believe that he is at, he's at work to will and to do of his good pleasure in our lives, in spite of the fact that we sometimes put up the barriers and the walls by our failures, by the sin that comes into our lives. Abraham is set forth as an example to us. An example of what? An example of faith. As we read through scripture, the kind of faith that's needed in order to please God. Uh, you know, you remember the passage in Hebrews, we've read it several times before, that Scripture says it's, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do we have that basic faith? I trust we do. I believe we do. As Abraham sought God in faith, so must we each and every day. We've sometimes sung that little chorus, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. We need to look at our lives and say, is that really true? Do we really believe that? If we believe God, as Abraham did, we become the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And again, Paul makes that really quite a point in Galatians chapter 3. In verses 7 to 9, Galatians 3, 7, Therefore, be sure 
that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. That passage ties right back to Genesis chapter 12, when God gave the original promise to Abraham that through his descendants, the nations of the world would be blessed. And of course, the ultimate uh, focus of that was in the Messiah, who would come as a descendant of Abraham. But you'll notice Abraham is called the believer. And we are his children by faith, as we too are believers. We live in a day and age when belief becomes, uh, you know, it's an often attacked word. There are those I, I was reading, where was I reading it? Just, just yesterday, I think it was. Oh, it was in the newspaper, huh, of all places. But they were talking about the fact that, um, that Mary, the Virgin Mary, is being restudied in many groups today. And uh, they're talking about how all the mythology has grown up around her, uh, even to the point now where, of course, they're liberal scholars, but they believe that Mary was just a person like anybody else. And, of course, she, you know, there was no uh, divine conception here, no, no immaculate conception for her, and, and no uh, virgin conception for her either. And, uh, of course, this is the point to try to make her as human as everybody else. Well, you know, from the evangelical point of view, evangelical Protestant point of view, she was a human, just like everybody else. But she was special in the sense that God did, through her, conceive his son without the normal processes. And we, we believe in the virgin birth as evangelical Christians. But there are those, and I, to me, it just seems, why would anybody spend his whole life uh, trying to dig up theological uh, discussions to deny the basic tenets of the faith. Seems like a fruitless way to spend your life. And I feel sorry for those people when they stand before God and try to explain how they tried to explain God away. And it's going to be a little tough for them, I think. But I guess we can just be thankful we're not in their shoes and not trying to do that. But it all comes down to faith. You know? The virgin birth is an item of faith. The resurrection of Christ is an item of faith. The, the birth of this promised son was an, a, an item of faith. They had to believe God that the miracle could be performed in spite of the fact that, as the scripture said, Sarah's womb was dead and Abraham was too old to, uh, to procreate. In the 21st chapter, in the second verse in Genesis, we're told that the child was born at the appointed time. Oh, the appointed time. In Genesis 4, uh, no, no, in Galatians 4, 4, uh, we read, In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son. In the fullness of time. Over and over again in Scripture we find the appointed time. God has an appointed time. And it wasn't God's appointed time when Ishmael was born. It wasn't God's appointed time five years before Isaac was born. It was God's appointed time when he said it was his appointed time. And so it would be for the Son of God, the coming of Messiah, in God's appointed time. And of course, we can look at that appointed time and we can say, oh, but 
it was such a good time for him to be born, you know, because one nation ruled the world, and there was one language which was spoken largely through most of the empire of Rome. And you could point to many things that made it, uh, you know, even physically the fullness of times, but God didn't need any of those things. God appointed that hour because in his sovereign plan, that was the right time for the Son of God to be born. And so it was for Isaac. Why? Why was it this time? There was nothing particularly eventful about Abraham being 100 and uh, Sarah being 90 other than the fact that they were past childbearing. But this was God's appointed time. Now, of course, the reference is partly to the fact that the angel of the Lord had, the year before, said at this time, uh, next year, the child will be born. So the appointed time, the time appointed by the angel was now being fulfilled, as God had promised. It helps us, I, I think importantly, it reminds us that God will answer prayer and fulfill his will in his time. In his time. And what is our place in it all? Our place in it all is to believe him, to have faith, that God will answer our prayers, accomplish his purpose according to his own timetable. He is at work, and his work is to accomplish his purpose in your life, in my life. And it's not our role to resist him by urging him on or being impatient with what he's about to do or losing our faith in some way or, uh, or another, rushing ahead as Abraham and Sarah did in bringing about Ishmael, God will do it in his time. And that's really the hardest part for us, is it not? To wait, to be patient. It was hard for Abraham and Sarah 25 years. Again, that's a long time to wait for something so desperately desired as that. And yet, wait they did. And with the faith that God honored. In Philippians chapter 2, let me read a couple of well-known verses here. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that's what we're here for. We're here to serve him, to achieve his good will, his good pleasure. We're not here for our good pleasure. And yet he gives us pleasure in this life as we fulfill his pleasure. He is at work in you and in me to do his good will. Sometimes we may not feel that that's what's happening, but that's what he's about. And even if we're in so-called backslided, slidden condition, whatever that is. It's hard to you know, nail that word down in Scripture. But we all know there are times when we're off on a rabbit trail and we're not on that straight and narrow that we see before us. But even then, God is at work to bring about His good pleasure in our lives. Not that He leads us astray, certainly not. But he works at us even when we are astray. He was working in Abraham and Sarah even when they were living a lie before Pharaoh and before Abimelech. 
And he was at work within them even when they were in the process of bringing Ishmael into existence. It wasn't a surprise to God. Oh, no, I've got to put Ishmael in my computer somewhere. How am I going to work him in? Well, I mean, you know, that's an absurd way to think. Uh, God knew it before it ever happened. God knew Ishmael was coming along. Uh, and, and it was all there within God's program. Not that he willed their disobedience or their impetuosity, but that he allowed for it and put it into his great program. To me, it's really interesting to see or to read about the name of this first child, the only child of uh, Sarah. The child's name, Isaac, the word Isaac means laughter. And his name would be a constant reminder to Abraham and Sarah and to everyone else of the great joy that his birth brought to Abraham and Sarah. Think about it for a moment now. Abraham and Sarah had grieved God before Pharaoh. They had grieved God in their rushing ahead and bringing Ishmael into existence. They had grieved God before Abimelech. And yet God gives them what? Joy. God gives them great joy. God doesn't hang the, the sins of our past over our heads and keep knocking us over the head and saying, you stupid, you know what you did back there? Just for that, you're going to have a rotten life. No. God is here to give us joy and peace. He's here to grant forgiveness and cleansing. And that's what he's about. And it's for us to allow him to do it. And not to keep berating ourselves for our failures. In verse 6 of this passage in Genesis, you'll notice that Sarah gave God her full credit. She says, God did it. God gave laughter to me. God gave laughter to me. Isaac, all who heard of the birth would laugh with Sarah, not at Sarah, with Sarah, because of the joy that this child brought to her and to Abraham over the impossible miracle of God of giving birth, allowing Sarah in her old age to give birth. I mean, it was, it was so humorous, joyfully humorous. Is there a way to be humorous and not joyful? I don't know, I suppose. There are sick jokes, aren't there? This was not a sick joke. This was a great joyful occasion on the part of uh, Abraham and Sarah. And the household, can you imagine the joy in the household? All the hundreds of men and women that were attached to Sarah's house, Sarah and Abraham's household. How they longed for their mistress to have a child. And to see this happen, oh, I, I just think there was great celebration. Great celebration. They probably danced around the fire at night, you know, and who knows what all they did in the joy that was brought through the birth of this miracle child. She'd been married probably close to 70 years. And she was 90 years of age herself. And to give birth to a son? What a testimony. This was a testimony to the power and the reality of God in their midst. And that's why God delayed it. He does these things as testimony to his majesty and his power. 
And he wants your life and my life to demonstrate the majesty and the power and the reality of his presence. And that's why he forgives us. And that's why he blesses us. And that's why he brings joy into our lives, even in the midst of sorrow, often. In the fourth verse in that 21st chapter, we discover that Abraham was quick to obey concerning the circumcision of his son. Unhesitating obedience. He didn't say, oh, but God, it's going to hurt the kid. No, he just went ahead and did as God had already commanded back in the 17th chapter as we read about it there. He circumcised Isaac on the eighth day as an act of obedience to God. The passage in, in the 21st chapter there keeps underscoring the age of Abraham and Sarah. And of course, that is done for the purpose of everyone recognizing the miracle that was at work here. He had miraculously rejuvenated Sarah's body and Abraham's body so that they were able, through the natural process of human procreation, to bring forth the child. This is not a virgin birth. We are well aware of that. This was not a, a birth that did not involve Sarah and Abraham. It did exactly involve them. He rejuvenated their bodies so that they were able to have the uh, natural intercourse and produce the child as a result. The scripture keeps emphasizing the fact, and, and it did so clear back in, in the 18th chapter, where it says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. <laughs> she was past. You know? the, the point is not for us to say, well, look, she lived to be 137, and he lived to be 175. So let's compute this on our, our little computer. And let's say, well, given today we live, let's say, to be an average of 80, and, and women are quite often fertile up till 45 at least, and so what is 45 out of 80? Therefore, what is 90 out of 137? You know, marginally she would, no. The scripture makes it clear that it doesn't matter how old she lived to be, she was past childbearing. It was no longer possible physically in the normal process for her to have a child or for Abraham to get her pregnant. This is the point of the passage. Whatever we might want to try to rationalize in our minds to try to do away with God's miracle, you know, we, we need to be careful that we're not sort of latter-day deists here who, who think that, yeah, God's up there and, and, and God put everything in work, but God doesn't interfere. God doesn't reach down and touch his people because he does, as we well know, day by day, moment by moment, he touches his people. Now, when God rejuvenates, God rejuvenates well. And she was able to go through a normal pregnancy. She was able to give birth. She was able to nurse this child for the necessary two to four years that, sh that was common in that particular society. Not only did he touch her, but he touched Abraham. And he touched Abraham so well that Abraham would father six more sons by another wife 40 years later. He was still fathering children at 150. So what God does, God does well. Let's look at verse 8 of chapter 21. And the child grew and was weaned. 
And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the skin and the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from, from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad to drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." It was a custom of the nomadic people of that time that a feast, a feast be given on the day that the child was weaned. In the first segment of his life, that child was known as a suckling. Now, as a result of this feast, he is called the weaned one. Weaning usually took place somewhere between age two and age four. So we could estimate and just kind of average and say he is three at this time. And most commentators more or less uh, agree that that was probably about the time that this feast was given. I believe that not only was all of Abraham's household invited to come to this feast, but I think also the Philistine neighbors were invited to come and to share in the joy of the Feast of the Weaned One. And I think it was a joyous occasion. There was dancing, and there was laughter, and there was good food, and they were having a good time. Sarah at first was having a good time too until she spotted Ishmael. We're not told what Ishmael was doing. All we're told was that he was mocking Isaac. Now, was he trying to walk like Isaac walked? You know, What was he doing? We don't know, but it offended Sarah as she saw this teenager, about 17 years of age now, mocking her little son, the son of her own womb. Now, you have to think about Ishmael here for a moment. Ishmael had been the only son of Abraham for 14 years. And certainly Abraham treated him with deference. He was not treated like all the rest of the people in the household because he was Abraham's son. And now, for the past three years, someone else has stepped into that place. 
And now there's a great feast and a great festival being thrown, and everybody is happy because of what? Because of the weaned one, not because of Ishmael. He has now been pushed back into the shadows. He is now in a second position relative to this little boy. And now think about it for a minute. A 17-year-old doesn't always think totally rationally, <laughs> especially in our society, but even then. And, and to see this little three-year-old becoming the object of everyone's attention and affection, it must have been a real blow to him. And I don't think he was prepared for it. And so he mocks. He, he does something to a, attract attention to himself. And he attracts Sarah's attention. Why do people do strange things at times? Why do people dress the way some people do? Why do they put on their bodies and through their bodies and other things, things like they do? Usually it's a cry, look at me. I need attention, I'm lonely. This young man was feeling the loss of attention. And his little half-brother, I think, was being resented more and more every day. What does this tell us about Sarah? I think the fact that Sarah reacted so quickly, it, at least it appears quickly here, and so strongly indicates that Sarah had never completely forgiven herself nor her husband for the birth of Ishmael, for their rash act in rushing ahead and thinking, oh, well, God really wants to provide a son by the surrogate uh, method. And so they, and you know, Sarah has to blame herself in this as well as Abraham because she is the one, it seems from Scripture, who thought up the idea and told Abraham this is what they ought to do. Abraham, of course, was Ill, e, uh, equally guilty in carrying it out. After all, he was supposed to certainly know better. But as she saw this mocking, she knew that this was just the tip of the iceberg. It certainly wouldn't get better as the years went by. And I think she already had thought much about Ishmael's presence and about the presence of Hagar. And so it just burst forth. It just kind of broke open as she saw Ishmael mocking her son. And so Sarah went to Abraham and said, I want you to get rid of them. Send them away. I don't want them to be here in our household any longer. The scripture says that this request grieved, distressed Abraham greatly. And you can imagine it would. This was his son. He was responsible for his existence. Hagar was the mother of the son. So even though she was not in the place of Sarah in Abraham's life or in his mind, she nevertheless was stood higher than the rest of the household. And, you know, he, to just dump them out when he was really responsible for what had happened grieved him. It distressed him. And he was really caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. He, he had to do or he had to pay close attention to what Sarah said because she was his beloved. She was the one for whom he cared more in this world than anyone else. So she could, he could not ignore what she requested. But at the same time, this was his son. 
oh Lord, what to do? How in the world can I just dump them out into the desert and send them away? No, it's not like today when we could put them on an airplane and, and make arrangements in the other end for somebody to pick them up and see to it that they were housed. He just had to send them away, out into the desert, more or less. What a horrible thought. But God, God came to his rescue. God knew his distress. God knew his dilemma. So God came into the scene, and God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham at the point of his need. And God said to Abraham, Do as Sarah has said, because your descendants will be through Ish Isaac, not through Ishmael. And I will bless Ishmael, and he will be a great nation. In effect, have no fear. Do as she has said. Now, this does not remove the pain, but it certainly removes any guilt, or it should have at least removed any guilt, because God was taking the responsibility. God was saying, roll the responsibility off onto my shoulders. I will take it, and I will watch over them. Even though they go into the desert, I will be with them. There are times when we have to release our children, aren't there? When we have to let them grow up and, and let them go off, as it were, into the desert or the wilderness, it might seem, particularly since sometimes their, their understanding and the way their life is headed doesn't seem particularly right. And yet we have to believe God that he is there, that he will be with them, that he will protect them and help them, and that he will achieve his perfect plan in their lives if we but trust, if we but believe, if we have the faith of Abraham the believer. So God removed, you might say, the rock or the hard place, one or the other, and urged him to go ahead and send the woman and her child into the wilderness. Why did the Lord do this? The Lord could have said, now don't do what Sarah says. She'll get over it. I'll just make sure that Ishmael's a good boy. Now God knew that Ishmael would not be a good boy. God knew that Ishmael would not be a good influence on Isaac. That Ishmael would probably drag him down and, and lead him the wrong way. And so God said, send them away into the desert because your descendants, descend, your line of descent will not be through Ishmael. From what we know about the Ishmaelites, they were not a godly people. They were, in effect, a godless people. The uh, practical economic ramifications of this <laughs> decision of Abraham, huh? or God's decision, what God was calling for was a separation. A separation of his people from the Ishmaelites. Now, the Ishmaelites would later impact the Israelites on many occasions. The one we know, I suppose, the best was when Joseph was carried off and sold into Egypt by the Ishmaelites. Now, they were simply the go-betweens, and God used them, you know, the wrath of man, even to fulfill his own purpose, you might say. And uh, God used it, as Joseph would later say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it uh, for good. Uh, but they would be the, um, the instruments there of this particular activity. God calls for separation of his people. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read these words, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has the believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons, sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God has always called for a separation of his people. God called for a separation of Isaac and Ishmael. They were not to coexist because the one would ultimately, as we'll, we'll notice, not today, but next time, the one would be the symbol of the law and of death, and the other would be the symbol of grace and of life. God calls for separation. Now, as Paul later says, he doesn't mean that we get out of this world. He doesn't mean we go live in a monastery someplace because we're going to be separate from this world because if we just go live in a monastery, we can be just as much in the world there as anywhere else. But he means separate in our hearts and separate in our minds that our focus is on him and that we walk in his ways and trust in the things that God would do and we don't think the world's thoughts. What fellowship has light with darkness? God's people should not have as their closest bosom buddies godless people. People who hate the Lord should not be our best friends, those with whom we enjoy great fellowship and fun. It's not that we don't have acquaintances with those people. It's not we don't have a witness with those people. It's not that we don't rub shoulders with them. We certainly do every day. But our primary obligation is to have fellowship with God's people, to rub shoulders with them, to, to, to really enjoy our closest fellowship with His people. Our obligation is first, the Scripture teaches us, to the household of faith. Because, as we read, what fellowship has light with darkness, has the temple of God with Belial. There is none. And so God instructed him to send the woman and the child into the wilderness. They will be separate. They, I will raise up a great nation, but it will not be amongst you. And Isaac will be the one through whom your descendants will be named. Through laughter will come the great nation of Israel, through whom would come Messiah. Well, I think we'll pick up there next week.